Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Smoking kills, and so does denying smokers opportunities to quit. While stark, the message is simple and drips with common sense. However, it's a perspective often found lacking in tobacco control research and public health. But not all public health systems are bereft of such ways of seeing. The UK, for instance, has taken a global lead in seeking to capitalize on the potential benefits of vaping as a tool for harm reduction, and a cabal of careful researchers and Tier 1 organizations have been leading the charge. Joining us today on RegWatch is John Britton, Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Nottingham and the former chair of the Royal College of Physicians Tobacco Advisory Group. In 2016, Britton shepherded, to, shepherded the publication of RCP's groundbreaking 200-page report titled Nicotine Without Smoke, which emphatically stated that the risks of vaping are small and the benefits are great. Professor Britton, thank you for joining us again on RegWatch. It's a pleasure. Nice to be back. Yeah, this is our third time here, and it is really good to see you. Before we dive into all of the issues around vaping, let's start first with an update from the UK on the coronavirus. Now, you're a respiratory physician, and I understand you've been pressed into service. How bad was the UK hit by COVID-19? Uh, it's been hit badly, uh, perhaps not as well, not as badly as, as we feared. But uh, looking at our figures, we're, I think, fourth in the world for cases per million after Spain and Italy uh, and the US. But it's been it's been bad. Uh, but we're over the worst of it over the last couple of weeks or so. Hospital admissions have started to fall and ITU beds are starting to clear. But it's been bad. And you're just this evening, uh, you've been doing calls, ambulance calls. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, well, I, uh, they've, um, because of my tender age, I've been kept away from patient-facing duties. So uh, I've been doing telephone work to support the people that are doing the hard work. So, yeah, triaging calls and doing some clinics and so on. So here at RegWatch, definitely at least in our neck of the woods here in Canada and British Columbia, the impact has been very little. The concern that we've had is is that the economic issues are, could outweigh uh, the issues as a result of the disease. Our position is that it's overblown, but I, I understand that you might have a different perspective on that. I would say it's definitely not overblown uh, in the UK or in the other countries around the world that have been hit so far. Um, and I think those of us that have got away in time, um, the UK, I think, is one, along with Italy and Spain, obviously China, who managed to control the epidemic very early on. But for those of us that are a little more uh, relaxed in our initial approach, if action hadn't been taken when it was, I think we would have an absolute public health disaster. So I don't think this is uh, an epidemic to be underestimated. And if Canada has managed to avoid the worst of it, and your figures certainly look as if you've got half the rates that we have here, then well done, and long may that continue. Okay, well, that's good. And I mean, I'd, I'm hoping that we can talk about a little bit more as we get going. Uh, but before we do that, let's dive into the vaping stuff, because that's obviously, for us, the big issue. And we're concerned a bit because, you know, uh, there has been some uh, cross-fertilization, if you want to put it that in any other way, uh, between COVID and vaping. But let's go back four years ago, almost to the day, mm -hmm. actually. is May, It was May 1st, 2016, when you were first on the show. You came on to talk about the Royal College of Physicians report, um, Nicotine Without Smoke. And uh, I've got a clip of it, and we're just going to, um, let's just make sure that we can get it. just released by the Royal College of Physicians in Britain. Comprehensive and definitive, two words which best describe a groundbreaking report on e-cigarettes just released by the Royal College of Physicians in Britain. In a paradigm shift for public health officials, the report prioritizes the needs of smokers trying to quit over the misconceived threats of vaping. The Globe and Mail calls the RCP report a ringing endorsement of e-cigarettes that delivers a stinging rebuke to public health officials who take an absolutist and moralist stand against vaping. 
That viewpoint is soundly rejected by the Royal College of Physicians, which represents over 32,000 doctors and is one of the most prestigious professional organizations in Western medicine. In its 200-page report titled Nicotine Without Smoke, the RCP makes some sweeping conclusions, including that nicotine alone is not carcinogenic, and compared to continued smoking, nicotine use in e-cigarettes is of minimal consequence. The report also states there is no evidence that e-cigarette use has resulted in the renormalization of smoking, or that vaping serves as a gateway for never-smokers, including young people, to pick up the habit. The report's authors emphatically convey that the risks of vaping are small and the benefits are great, and urgently call on regulators to safeguard e-cigarettes as a valuable tool in the battle against smoking. The RCP recommends that while regulatory restrictions must safeguard against hazard, they must also be proportionate so as to not unnecessarily inhibit the development, availability and use of e-cigarettes. Regulation of e-cigarettes should also ensure products that deliver nicotine do so in doses smokers would find satisfying in order to encourage making the switch from smoked tobacco, which the report says should be promoted widely. Finally, the authors say it is vital that non-tobacco nicotine products be excluded from tobacco taxes. It's hard to overstate the impact this report could have on the regulatory debate in Canada, or it could be dismissed as was the report last summer from Public Health England, which found that vaping is 95% safer than smoking. That was done by a small group of experts who were using their best guess as to how less harmful it was. It, it wasn't really a scientific process. It was individuals, a group of individuals, getting together with David Nutt, who's um, a, a, a good psychiatrist and good on substance abuse, but it was their best guess. Joining us today is John Britton, the chair of the Tobacco Advisory Group at the Royal College of Physicians in Britain and professor of epidemiology at the University of Nottingham. Professor Britton, thanks for coming on the show. You were responsible for bringing together and editing all of the contributions into the RCP report, which sounds like a ringing endorsement for e-cigarettes and their potential to save lives. E-cigarettes can certainly save lives. We In Britain, we have nearly 9 million smokers, and we know that half of those, 4.5 million people alive today in one country, will die prematurely as a consequence of their habit unless they quit. And we also know that quitting is extremely difficult. So while we would like everybody just to stop smoking, it's hard, it doesn't happen. So electronic cigarettes can substitute for tobacco in a proportion of those. At the moment, the proportion is low. It's probably single-figure percentage of smokers who are have moved exclusively to electronic cigarettes. But as the products improve and with endorsement and support, I don't see why that couldn't be 50% or 70% or even more. And if that's the case, these products have the potential to save millions of lives in one country. They are potentially huge. Potentially huge. Have they lived up to potential? Uh, yeah, they have. I think not a great deal has changed in terms of the conclusion or the relevance of the conclusions of the report. Um, E-cigarette use increased in the UK through till about 2016-17 when that, that interview happened. And since then has been steady. But we now have 3.6 million vapors roughly in the UK. Uh, and our smoking rates have been falling consistently over the last five years while e-cigarettes have become widely used. They're falling faster than in the US by about 30-40% more. And they're falling a lot faster than in Australia, where, of course, electronic cigarettes uh, or vaping nicotine is, is illegal. So uh, it's been a success. And I think the predicted problems of vaping, um, certainly in the short term, have, have not materialized. And I think the policy then was right and with hindsight is right. One of the things that struck us uh, very strongly in the report was the acknowledgement that there, this was, might be a tough sell and that regulators should really get behind e-cigarettes and actually promote them, like get out there and really push them um, and then obviously make sure that that's reflected in terms of the regulations. 
what's your report card on the way in which regulators and countries have, you know, and organizations say like the WHO have approached vaping in the last four years? Well, it's been it's been quite a mixed bag. So um, in the European Union, thankfully, the Tobacco Products Directive, which sort of came into force around the time the report came out, but which uh, was fully implemented a year later, has required a system of notifying the content of e-cigarette solutions and and of emissions uh, contents. And that process has been going on. And we've had the opportunity to look through some of the data. It's very difficult to analyze, but uh, we've had the opportunity to look. And it would seem that the without regulation, but with the need to report, we have pretty low levels of potentially harmful substances in the vapor um, and no particular grounds to change the overall evaluation of four years ago that these products are not safe, but they're an awful lot less harmful than smoking. Now, Professor Britton, a, a lot of our viewers uh, have gone through four years now of increasing uh, amounts of demonization that's happened you know, towards vaping. Uh, the, the extent of which the bad headlines, we call them bad headlines here at RegWatch that we have, it's just impossible to even stay on top of it. We got prepared here, um, the, uh, 27, 2015 to 2017, and this is just a little bit of a look at some of the bad headlines. I mean, this stopped in 2017. So just to take a look at what kind of existed uh, years ago, you know, e-cigarettes are no safer than smoking. You know, depression linked to e-cigarette use. This one is just one puff of a flavored e-cigarette vapor contains dangerous levels of cancer-causing chemicals. Thank you for uh, the new, journal, new, new England Journal of Medicine. Vaping linked to a host of new health risks always is. Vaping's toxic vapors come mainly from solvents. And vaping is as bad for your heart as smoking cigarettes, study says. That's a lot. And like I said, that's 2015 to 2017. What are your thoughts on that then? Um, those headlines have happened, I guess, everywhere. We've certainly had no, no less than our share in the United Kingdom. But newspaper journalists write stories that, that sell newspapers. And if somebody publishes a paper saying these cigarettes are as harmful as, as smoking for whatever reason and for whatever justified or unjustified grounds, that's a news story and that's fair enough and it's up to people like me to respond to them from the other side. But I think what we've seen in the UK over the last six months or so is a quite a marked shift in this type of reporting. In the towards the end of last year, I think our partly as a result of the US uh, uh, epidemic, um, our journalists have started to realize that writing harmful stories about or stories that highlight the harm of vaping kills people and, uh, and have started to back off a little. Now that's, uh, that's actually amazing. I'm throwing up beside you here. Uh, obviously we have the CDC um, and the whole issue of Evali that started at the end of August. And before that we had 12 months of the vaping uh, epidemic of teen vaping. And yeah. so what was the impact uh, of this whole lung illness, the mysterious lung illness, do you think was on vaping worldwide even? Well, worldwide, it's, it was seen as an epidemic caused by vaping rather than an epidemic caused by vaping cut THC solutions. Um, and so some agencies around the world have indeed jumped on that in that it's a, it provides further evidence for those whose view is that e-cigarettes are a, a moral hazard of some sort or a health hazard. This is These are grounds to say, there you are, we told you so. But if you look at the data, the epidemic happened in the United States. I think there was a little bit spilled over into Canada, but there was no sign of it in the UK or the rest of Western Europe. And our drug monitoring system, certainly in the UK, the Medicines Healthcare Products um, Regulatory Agency collects adverse effects of e-cigarette reports, and the frequency of those reports is extremely low. We've had a handful of serious lung complications of, of vaping in the UK, which suggests that vaping nicotine is fundamentally 
not very harmful at all. Uh, but sticking other things in the electronic cigarettes, you're you're at the mercy of of whatever somebody felt able to put into the solution. And Professor Breton, you're you're an epidemiologist, and yep. so obviously epi epidemiology is the science that's you know really on top of all of this. Maybe explain for our viewers because we always are talking about the results uh, from epide epidemiology, epidemiology, but not actually the process. And could you give like Senior Professor of Epidemiology, give us the 101 on what exactly is the science? What does it entail? And then maybe connect that to how it works for vaping. Well, I'd, it would be tricky to do a, a year's master's in, 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 in a couple of sentences. So epidemiology is the study of the distribution disease and determinants, sorry, distribution uh, and determinants of diseases in populations. So you're looking at why some people, some populations get higher levels of disease than others. Initially, it's the study of epidemics, but latterly it's moved into studying all sorts of chronic diseases and so on. But it is, for the most part, an observational science. So you are using comparisons before and after or between countries, for example, to look for factors that distinguish a particular outcome in, in one place and, and yet is absent and in the absence of the outcome in another. So with the valley, it was a, a great example of that. Um, you know, the, the association with THC initially and then with vitamin E acetate is classic epidemiology. You have an outbreak of disease in one place at one time that doesn't affect the great majority of vapors around the rest of the world. There has to be something unique to the United States situation that's causing that rather than vaping per se. So looking at it from, say, a distance like across the pond <laughs> and you're looking at what's happening, you should assume, actually, just by the way it was presenting, that it was something that was going to be specific and not really, in, you know, endemic to vaping. It's something that was specific to vaping in, in North America. And, right. Uh, you know, because it, it, it happened over such a short period of time um, and the link with, 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 with THC use, which quickly became apparent. So with epidemiology, obviously, you're looking at population level statistics, and that's What's frustrating to a lot of vapors over the years because they, you know, trying to share their stories, personal stories about how vaping, you know, has saved their lives, at least, you know, got them off of smoking and they feel much better. Their doctors report that they're doing great and so on and so forth. But yet, you know, those are just anecdotes to FDA uh, and so forth because, you know, they're looking at population level data. Um, so that is the case. Is there room for the personal stories and in, in the anecdotes in, in epidemiology or does it have to kind of say flatten flatten the curve of the uh, of the anecdotes so you can get well, some the, kind of the a anecdote, anecdotal studies are studies based on a sample of one and, right. uh, you need samples of thousands to to pick up you know, strong up the kinds of signals you're looking for but so no they they, they have a role you, you you in epidemiology is the whole process of levels of evidence which goes from simple clinical observation which the anecdote is through to at the very other end of the spectrum randomized controlled trials but within a, a much of epidemiology smoking for example you cannot randomize a cohort of children to be lifelong smokers or not to see what happens to them 50 years later so you have to compromise on the quality of evidence so let me ask you this um so the raw raw data into um much epidemiology research uh, it does, can come from surveys, right? That is a, a tool that is used quite a bit, isn't it not? Yeah, a lot of it comes from routines data that, that are collected for other reasons or collected as part of a much larger survey. So most wealthy countries have national health surveys of different shapes and forms. Um, you can do an awful lot of work with routinely collected data in primary care and secondary care. Um, uh, certainly in the UK health system, that's entirely feasible. You can access anonymized GP records, for example, and that will be an opportunity to look at some of the determinants of COVID because those data will be there. Um, and sometimes you do experiments or you use natural experiments to see whether to, to, to see whether uh, cause and effect are associated. Mm. So what I'd like to try to get at here, because for us, we feel... And, and I will put it to you as a question in some form that there might be a crisis in epidemiology. We felt that in, with in terms of 
tobacco harm reduction because there clearly seems to be, you know, an entrenched kind of position inside public health where people just don't want to accept that vaping could save lives or, or even simply could be a, a, a tool for harm reduction. And it's kind of like a real, you know, vapor save this saves lives and public health kind of goes, we don't care, or at least that seems to be the result. Now, I know that's not all of public health because for years we've been talking with you and Linda Bald and, you know, so many others that, you know, have been fighting to have this other side of, you know, tobacco control kind of understand that harm reduction is a thing. So is there some, is there, could there be something with inside the science of epidemiology that is, is part of the problem? And I get at that because I see it as the self-reporting mechanism. So if you can't do proper kind of experimental research with teens, which I understand that, it would seem to me that then pretty much most of the data you'd be getting would be coming from teens self-report about their tobacco use. And so can that be trusted? And is there with inside, you know, epidemiology, you know, a metric or some kind of a standard deviation that you can apply to the fact that we know a certain number of teens always lie about, you know, their tobacco use? Yeah, that, well, that's quite a big question. Yeah, that's the whole principle of, of misclassification of either exposure or the outcome. So you make mistakes in measuring whether somebody is exposed to whatever it is, let's say smoking, and you make mistakes in determining whether somebody has, say, died of lung cancer, if you if, if you look interested in the association between smoking and lung cancer, because there are diagnostic errors. So there are always mistakes, and those mistakes, if unbiased, uh, you know, if they're just random mistakes, will tend to reduce the magnitude of any association between exposure and effect. But this is all just very basic epidemiological principles. The science of epidemiology is absolutely fine. It's designed and made to be used for exactly the kinds of things that you and I are talking about tonight and have in the past. It's a question of how those, those findings are interpreted that matter. And the important thing is to use the science of epidemiology and any other branch of science to, to throw light on a problem and create illumination rather than, and I'm paraphrasing a, a Scottish politician in this, rather than using statistics to support a prior idea. Statistics and epidemiological methods are used to test a hypothesis, disproving a null, rather than going into a study to say, well, I know what I'd like to find, now let me see if I can find it. Uh, the null hypothesis, that seems to be yeah. so uh, sorely forgotten these days. That is science. You're supposed to disprove what you believe to be the case and throw everything yeah. at it. And if you can't, well, then at that moment, until it is disproven, it is accepted as, as close to truth as you can get. But it still could be open to being blown away by the next scientist, correct? You disprove if you think that uh, there is a difference between two things uh, you set out trying to prove that there is no difference. And when eventually you cannot be convinced that there is no difference, then you conclude that there is a difference. So when it comes to vaping science, that's the big question all of our viewers are going to have. And leave COVID out for the second. We're going to dive into some of the nicotine uh, stuff and everything else. So when it comes to the vaping science, because... You know, we just had that paper that was uh, uh, retracted uh, by Professor Glantz and so forth. And I mean, that's just one example of what has been a lot of research over the years that we call suspect science. So, I mean, is there an inordinate amount of biased uh, science in vaping, uh, do you think? I mean, give us your honest you know, reaction in, uh, to what the science level is like. There's for poor vaping. science in vaping as there's poor science across the whole of science. Uh, and people are motivated by different things. But, you know, the, the temptation of getting to getting your name in a headline or even getting to be on your show <laughs> could be uh, quite an incentive uh, for some people. Um, what's happened with vaping is that I think a fair amount of work has come out to, to confirm or support the prior hypothesis of the person doing the work. Uh, you've mentioned Stan's withdrawn paper on the link between vaping and cardiovascular or heart disease. Um, Stan Glantz and a colleague also published a paper on the link between vaping and chronic lung disease. Um, the findings of which are just incoherent in relation to the lead times and, and natural history of the diseases involved. Now, those investigators must know that, as should the journals that are publishing it. But if a 
scientist decides to write the paper and the journal knows that there's going to be media publicity from it, then maybe it finds its way into print a little more easily than something that's a bit less uh, challenging but more reliable. Right. And that does make some sense. So, so that's not reassuring, I think, for some of our viewers because... <laughs> But, you know, the one thing that I do like to point out to our viewers is that you can't pick and choose which science you're going to be skeptical of. Uh, because, you know, if you're seeing a whole bunch of science coming from one set of researchers that's just always just beating down on vaping, but then there's other science out there that, you know, is encouraging, um, and they're not skeptical about that. Is, can you speak to that? It's a matter of interpretation. So if if for much of many of the headlines that you showed earlier on come from studies where somebody takes vaping fluid or vaping emissions and exposes cells in some sort of tissue culture experiment to those those chemicals and understandably the the human tissues involved curl up a bit at the edges and and showed signs of 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 insult or damage and uh, now that signifies the fact that there are uh, potentially toxic things in the vapor, though not necessarily to the point that's actually cause any real harm in practice. But what matters is where that level of harm might lie in relation to the alternatives. The alternatives, of course, being not exposed. And in that case, it's always better not to be exposed to something that's potentially harmful. But the other alternative is tobacco smoke. And what needs to be done is a comparison of relative harm. And very often the kinds of studies that hit the headlines in terms of harm from vaping don't have that comparator in there. Or this study is not set up in a way to quantify the risk in, in an equal, in a equivalent fair way. Let me ask you the straight up question. We actually asked this to uh, Dr. Uh, Leon Shahab and he came up with a great answer. And so I'm trying to press the researchers that are on the pro-vaping side, at least the pro-science side, on that's vaping, that's pro-vaping. Let me ask you this question. I'm, I'm stumbling over it because I'm embarrassed to ask, but can you say if vaping is safe? No, you can't say vaping's safe. Nothing's safe. So vaping won't be safe. The question is not whether is it safe or not that's an absolute binary judgment is how harmful is it and the answer to that's not very now could you say that it's been shown to be safe we at least know now that as we didn't in 2016 that short-term adverse effects from vaping other than the avali epidemic are extremely few and far between so in short-term use, there's no strong signal that there's something going badly wrong. The long-term use effects on chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, lung cancer, and even cardiovascular disease, we're not going to know for three or four decades. And we will never know from any sort of randomized trial. So it's always going to be observational. It will always be biased by the fact that people who vape have been smokers in the past. Um, so it's, we're never going to know. But you can look at what's happening in trends, for example, to look at the gateway theory, you can look at what's happening in trends of smoking among young people, and they are going emphatically down just about everywhere. Um, you can look at rates of lung cancer, and they are going down and continue to go down. It's too early to see an effect of vaping on lung cancer. But nevertheless, if you watch the figures closely, you do get signals as to whether something is going wrong. And as yet, there is no strong signal, in my opinion, other than the Avali epidemic, which was an un, is a paraphenomenon of everyday vaping, there is no strong signal that there is a serious harm to health. So explain for our viewers, if you could, um, RCP, the Royal College of Physicians, you know, how long has it been around? I always like, you know, give us the, the oomph on it and then connect that with Public Health England because you guys do work together. I mean, this is such a strong group of people and organizations in the UK that are behind, you guys are behind vaping. That's fair to say, correct? Yeah. The Royal College of Physicians is 500 or so years old. So it was a, originally a professional organization for doctors back in the, <laughs> yeah, half of 500 years ago when, when my former uh, com, uh, colleagues in medicine were unhappy about the quality of some of the people practicing medicine. So probably trying to stamp out a little bit of competition. <laughs> but uh, the organization exists to uh, set and maintain standards. So it's the 
it's the higher end standard. We have the General Medical Council, which decides whether you're fit to practice. So that's the sort of lower end cutoff. And the Royal College of Physicians sets the upper end standards. So it's always an organisation that has looked to, to aim high in what it does. And uh, and it does that across the board. And I've been fortunate to, to work in some areas for them. And the RCP, correct me if I'm wrong, came out with the pretty much the first report that you know herald, heralded the issues with smoking. Yeah, the, the, the RCP uh, saw the original reports linking smoking to lung cancer, which were all published in the early 50s, and couldn't understand why the then government did nothing about it. And so the first report on smoking and health came out in 1962, and it's the first time that uh, a report like that had been aimed at uh, the general population and to policymakers and politicians, rather than by doctors for doctors, which is the normal role of a whole activity of a of a professional organisation like the Royal College. Now, the 2016 report certainly had the. Uh, it certainly felt like it was a seminal piece of work, like you know, intended to really move things forward, like you're up, like the report 1962. Did the did the world, did the other health organizations in the world take it as seriously, do you think, as they should have? It was a, a mixed response. It's, it's always hard to tell. There's so much debate and so much, uh, so much noise in the whole vaping debate that you never quite know, you know what's, what's making an impression. Um, Public Health England, to go back to your earlier question, is a part of, the NA, of our National Health Service charged with public health responsibilities. And we do work closely with them. Um, and certainly Public Health England have used our work a great deal, um, uh, as we have theirs. Um, but they are two separate functions within UK medicine. As for organisations else, well, elsewhere in the UK, almost all medical organisations have now come round. Um, to my knowledge, that might be an overstatement, but the, the major players have all come in to support the principle of vaping with varying degrees of, of caveat. Um, around the world, things are very different, as you'll know. The World Health Organization remains very skeptical. Um, Do you know why that is? Do you know why? No, I, I don't know. Um, but I do get the impression that what happened with vaping was that a lot of people in the early stages were very frightened by it, uh, very frightened to be endorsing something that could turn out to be you know, horrendous uh, negative effect on public health. And nobody wants to be the person that says, that's a really good idea, let's do it. So I think it, it, it went up against the grain of, of the sort of cautious first do no harm principle that many in public health and elsewhere in medicine and health policy work to. Um, but having taken a position, it's then increasingly difficult as time passes to change it. And so some organisations, the British Medical Association in the UK, for example, which is a doctor's trade union, were pretty opposed to vaping in their official policy uh, in the early years. They've now come round to support, for example. Um, and that's it takes an awful lot of courage to say, OK, well, maybe we read the rooms wrongly two, three years ago, but now this is what we think is right. Um, and others haven't been able to make that move. And of course, others may actually be proven to be right. I'm saying that things are looking okay, but things may change. Well, talking about that, actually, you know, definitely coming out of the US, during E-Valley, towards the end of it, there was a, a determined move by vaping opponents and including Bloomberg, which I'm repeating myself, um, go, to go after RCP and Public Health England for some of the you know the statements and research and findings from 2016 yeah. and 2015 so there was a, a a full move to kind of you know undermine that that science that foundational science and then as covid came into play we saw that again too as well like how could you i mean how could you still support vaping is kind of the hair on fire attitude what do you make of that attack on the reputation of phe and rcp um, I, the RCP, to my knowledge, maybe I'm just a little bit thick-skinned. I, have, I haven't been aware of a great deal of criticism of the RCP position. I think PHE has had a great deal of criticism. Um, and 
I think most of it has been misplaced. But if you don't like the message, attack the messenger. The simple, the simple ABCs of uh, activism and politics, yeah. isn't it? So let's dive, let's dive over to um, some of the stuff that's been going on right now. And there's an article that came out, and this is, I've just got this curated here to a show's page. But I just want to throw one or two stories at you just to get some quick reaction. Smokers seem less likely than non-smokers to fall ill with COVID-19. What do you make of that? Uh, it, well, initially, initial response is skepticism because, you know, working in respiratory medicine, I can tell you, as any respiratory doctor can, that when you admit somebody who smokes with a respiratory illness and say, do you smoke? They'll often say, well, not anymore or no. Uh, and then when you ask, when did you last smoke? It was yesterday lunchtime or whatever it was. Just, but now I'm ill, I'm going to quit. So unless you ask the question very carefully uh, and probe into that background, you often get misleading smoking histories from people when they're first admitted to hospital. So that was my initial response. There's been a number of papers suggesting a, a lower proportion of smokers in people admitted with COVID. And I think some of the um, data sources that I referred to earlier, particularly the UK general practice data sets, and I think similar resources are available in Canada, will allow us to look very soon over, if, if not already, if others are doing it, at whether um, people who smoke and are known to be smokers before the epidemic came along have been more likely to become ill with COVID. So we will find out. What is clear is that if you're a smoker and you get COVID, you will do less well, more likely to end up on a ventilator, more likely to die. So whether there's a protective effect of smoking, I think the jury is still out. Um, uh, and it, perhaps there will be. There are potential mechanisms whereby smoking might protect against virus entry into, the, into human cells. Yeah, and I think the uh, description of that, um, our, our producer, Mr. Producer, put together something for us and said the idea behind the French research is that COVID-19 is understood to attach itself to the walls of cell receptors known as um, ACE2 receptors in the upper mm -hmm. airways. The virus then acts like a, a key to unlock the cell, allowing the virus to enter into the cell and use its infrastructure to multiply to do its dastardly uh, virus business. But the idea here is that nicotine also attaches to those receptors and acts as a key to unlock the cell, but then doesn't leave. So blocks blocks the door kind of thing. And so then the virus actually can't get in. That's the basic explanation of it. Does that sound like from what you understand? Uh, that's My understanding is slightly different, but it's not far away from that. And uh, so the principle is that nicotine... Uh, could be if there is an effect, a protective effect of, on smoke, of smoking on catching COVID or becoming ill with COVID, um, it is very plausible that that will be mediated by nicotine, in which case it makes all the more sense. For, and, and then given that smokers are going to do less well if they get symptomatic from the disease. So it makes an awful lot of sense to switch from tobacco, nicotine from tobacco, get rid of the toxins for the most part, and shift onto vaping or medicinal nicotine and replace the nicotine that way. Now, a lot of uh, vapors have got kind of a, like a sweet little irony going. They're just going, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You mean nicotine might actually be the thing that, forget hydroxychloroquine, it's nicotine. I mean, I'm just seeing, you know, public health brains popping like crazy with that. Well, maybe. There's, there are trials. There's a trial going on in France, as you mentioned. Uh, and uh, I believe there may be trials happening in the UK um, and probably elsewhere around the world. So we will see. One thing about having such a huge epidemic is that there is no shortage of people to in enter into trials. Now, you mentioned that, you know, at hospital with adults, that a weakness of these kinds of studies is that they're not going to self-report correctly. You know, we, we know that they don't. I love how you say it. Like, you know, oh, I'm a, I'm a quit smoker, but if that was yesterday, that counts in somebody's brain, right? The same way. So, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the teen stuff, because if we can't rely on adults being honest um, when they're reporting at hospital, how can we rely on teens to be honest when they're responding to, you know, to the national, you know, health, youth, tobacco use survey, that kind of thing, right? Because, you know, self-report's an issue. 
Well, it is, but then self-report of anything is an issue. Um, and so generally, as, I, as I've said, if those self-reports are, are erroneous but unbiased, so a proportion of people who are smokers say they're not, but similarly a proportion who are not smokers say they are, you end up with the right figure even though it's the wrong people if the two bands balance each other out. Um, but measuring smoking isn't a reliable uh, measure by, by self-report. You know, we have, I've never published this, but looking at data from a group of people that we followed up just over 10 years, and we asked people in at the second study, have you ever smoked? And about a third of those who'd said they were smokers at the first study 10 years older, earlier, said, no, I've never smoked. Hmm. And so, so people's memories uh, select out things they'd rather not have happened to them, and people feel uh, embarrassed to admit they're smoking. You have very low self-reported smoking rates among pregnant women who tend to be, in the UK anyway, tend to be teenage girls from very poor uh, circumstances, and they feel terribly embarrassed to say, I'm a smoker, so they deny it. Understandably, I think we all would. Oh, I can uh, definitely understand that. Let's just one one more on the on the self-reporting and the surveying. And I've asked this lots over the years, and it falls off the wayside. But I think it really does need to be brought back up to the top because the the one measure we hear all the time, and it's the measure that literally is just beating the industry into the ground, is this thirty-day measure. Is this used once in thirty days? And how yeah. that could pop? I mean, and that's the measure. That's where the big number is. That's the number that it used, you know, drives all the numbers in the media. Is it a reliable measure? Is it a weak measure? Should it be a thrown out measure? I think it's a dreadful measure because you, you know, children, adolescents experiment with stuff. Uh, and that's part of growing up. We've, we've all done it with different things. Um, so using something once means very little so far as I can see. It means that they've got access. It means that they're tempted by it. But it's not addiction. It's not sustained use. So I think it is a very weak measure. Um, it serves a purpose. You know, how much is vaping used among young people? Yeah, well, if 15% of young people have tried a vaping device at one point, that tells you something about, about that population. But if you actually want to know about addiction, you need to get into regular use. And to be fair, with vaping, we haven't had the same uh, easy metrics available that we have with smoking. You can't ask how frequently people vape terribly easily because people differ so much according to the nicotine strength they use and, and the circumstances they're in. So we haven't really worked out a lot of that stuff terribly well. There's been attempts done, but we haven't really got there. Whereas smoking is easy. Do you smoke at all nowadays? In, in the UK is the question that we use for any smoker, and that would work for vaping. But do you smoke every day is the, is the measure that really matters. Now, and the equivalent for vaping would, would be exactly that. Right. So when you look at what's going on in North America, because, you know, the move is still here. I mean, New York has just implemented a flavor ban and, you know, on the back of COVID. Rhode Island, Massachusetts, I mean, Florida. I mean, they're, they're still dropping, like, right now. Um, what would your advice, if you could give that, you know, unofficially to, uh, to those folks that are pushing these vaping bans uh, in Canada and the U.S.? I think it's, it's counterproductive. It will kill people. Public health policy is supposed to help people live healthier and longer lives. Uh, pushing people back into smoking does none of that. Vaping... Uh, is not harmless, but it is less harmful than smoking. Vaping non-flavoured liquids is almost certainly less harmful than vaping flavoured liquids. But if a flavour is the deal breaker or deal maker that allows somebody to switch successfully from tobacco, it's a price worth paying. So I think removing flavours is a big mistake. It will just make uh, vaping less accessible, less satisfactory for smokers. The argument about children comes down to how these things are marketed, not the flavour. Um, the presence of the flavor is is a is not what, it, what attracts a child to use the product. It's the way that that flavor is presented. If you cartoon imagery and child friendly uh, images to sell a flavor, it's a very different world than if you just lay, put the or label orange in white print on a black background on a plain pack. 
Do you get disheartened sometimes when you see the, the level of opposition that continues here in North America? Um, no, not disheartened, really. It's just it's, it's, a, it's a healthy debate, I would hope. Uh, and there are many people in North America who, who, who see things from the perspective that I take. But um, I think it's a shame that such a huge opportunity to improve public health is being neglected or going to waste. Um, and I think one of the underlying problems in the United States is the classification of electronic cigarettes as a tobacco product. Clearly they're not. They're no more a tobacco product than nicotine replacement therapy is. But right from the outset, that sort of groups together two things which are very different harm profiles, but which um, are, have the same name. Mm. And that's that's where things start to go wrong. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a detour here. You're mindful of our time, and thank you so much for your time too, uh, Professor Britton. I know we had the tech stuff here that kept us from starting on time. I just want to, I want to dip over and in just into the brain of public health for a minute, because from our side, I mean, I'm, we're critical. I, I haven't been more, I have not been more critical about public health in my entire life than in the last two months, because it just so many of the decisions around COVID, right or wrong, with regards to the lockdown, my problem has been uh, what has seems to be a complete total uh, inability to even consider that there could be catastrophic um, consequences to uh, the economic shutdown. And, and it just seems to me that the way in which some in public health are kind of shrugging their shoulders is the same way they shrug their shoulders towards the message that vaping uh, could be a tool for harm reduction. And what strikes me so, so much about this is that I feel that public health has like lobotomized themselves because there's a whole chunk of public health that we know that is so deeply concerned with the economic impact on, on health. So if you look at the CDC, for instance, they've got, they've got their social determinants of health is a very huge uh, uh, part of their program. They've got their healthy peoples, uh, their healthy people plan. And this is new out in 2020. And this is their huge plan that they've got on like right down to community level getting involved to make sure that, you know, you know, social determinants or health or conditions in the environment to which people are born, live, work, learn, play, worship, and so forth. And that, you know, key things here is you're looking at economic stability, your neighborhood and built environment, your health and healthcare, social and community context, your education. All of these things have been smashed to some degree um, as a result of COVID. And so, and, and when you get into their plan, it's like right down to like grade four level and, 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 and modifying the, you know, uh, modifying curriculum for grade four students all across the country. So, I mean, this is public, this is public health and this, chunk of their brain seems to have just been pushed away. COVID's a big deal. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, it's killing a lot of older people. And you could take a, an ageist line and say, well, that doesn't matter. They're not economically active. But that's a little bit tricky, I think, as a, as a political and moral cell. Um, but it's not just older people. It's it's people across the whole age spectrum who are getting, in the UK anyway, developing serious illness, much worse than the standard respiratory infections that are treated on ITU in normal times. Um, now, I think if you have an epidemic that is doing that and is doing it to thousands of people every day, uh, you're going to see a huge economic hit anyway because people are just not going to want to go out of their house. So I think it's there's a counterfactual to it. There's a short-term pain of the lockdown and controlling the epidemic, or there's the avoiding the short-term pain and then possibly getting hit extremely hard economically and in terms of health. So, so I no don't know. Neither, we, are, we are both in a position as we were with the vaping argument 10 years ago. We don't know what the right approach is. But um, you've only got to look at Italy and to look at what things were like at the peak of the hospital admissions three or four weeks ago here to see it could have been very bleak indeed. Mm. 
So what, what, what could we expect, do you think, then, with the virus over the next six months? Because obviously, my opinion is just, you know, a commentary guy here in Vancouver. Yours is uh, informed. It's, it might be slightly more informed. This is complex stuff. Uh, we, I think most countries are seeking to either, well, you either go for one of two tactics. One is to eradicate the disease and then contact trace and keep it out of the way. And South Korea is going down that route and I suspect Australia will go that way. Um, or you just let the epidemic burn gently in the background and without being explicit, my impression is that's what Sweden is trying to do successfully uh, by closing down a little, but not not uh, not as tightly as in some countries. But there's, that's the two choices. You keep the virus out and uh, deal with any of the cases that do slip into the country, or you let it burn in the background until gradually you have population immunity enough to control the spread further. But that's not going to be easy for any of us. And the next, we're not going to go back to normal anywhere around the world for some time, if ever. Uh, it's 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 a lot easier for me to dismiss that argument when it's coming from Fauci. When it's coming from you, it, it's just like it's just like I feel it right here. Uh, I feel it right here. Uh, Professor Britt, let me throw a couple of rapid fires at you uh, as we're generating our sound bites. If you recall, when we usually do our taping episodes, you know, we do spend some time to get those. Let me ask you this. Vaping, should it be classified as an essential service, certainly in times of emergency like COVID? Yeah. And why? <laughs> why? Because uh, we need to help people quit smoking. Um, and the COVID epidemic, ASH in the UK, released figures yesterday suggesting that about 300,000 out of our total seven and a bit million smokers have quit since the COVID epidemic hit. Now, that's quite an achievement, and they'll have been able to do that by accessing all sorts of methods, including just going cold turkey. But I would wish to have seen, I wish we'd seen our vape shops being allowed to stay open. Um, in practice, I understand that many did, and local trading standards officers turned a blind eye to the fact, uh, because it's important that people can access the product. But I definitely think it should it should be classed as an essential service. And on the days that we, uh, in the UK, the government changed its mind to say that it was okay for off-licenses to sell alcohol, that was a vital service and so had to open. I would have said that on the same day it might have been sensible to include vape shops. Great. Now, some of these questions are a little bit disjointed. We do our whole truth uh, uh, videos, which are short videos that we put out on Twitter and stuff. So this one's just going to be coming from, from sideways. Um, I've been wanting to ask this to you for some time. Back in 2016, when we first talked, and inside the RCP uh, report, Nicotine Without Smoke, it makes the argument that... Um, not only should nicotine be available through e-cigarettes, but they should be at a strong enough level in which that they're actually going to be effective for helping, say, yeah. a pack-a-day smoker try to quit. And yeah. that's that, explain that. And Juul got its butt handed to it because it was did exactly that. It made sure it had good nicotine that got to the brain <laughs> and it was strong enough to really replace a pack-a-day smoker. It's almost like they were following the RC, RCP, yet that's like prima facie example of how they were building their technology just to addict kids. Sure. Well, I think that's true. I think Juul did have a problem in, in marketing to children, and which was probably a mistake. Well, well, definitely a mistake. I mean, a mistake from a marketing strategy as well as a mistake from health point of view. But Juul's um, higher dose uh, product is, as in the US, is not allowed in the United Kingdom. Uh, the maximum for, for dual is the same as any other e-cigarette liquid. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how well the product performs in the UK when it's, uh, apart from its design and, and convenience, has no other specific advantage over other vaping products. But definitely having a, a higher level of nicotine was part of the kind of the plan a little bit when it comes to effectively getting people off of cigarettes. Yeah, the, generally, the, the higher the dose that's available to the smoker, the better. The cigarette still delivers nicotine more effectively than any vaping device. And many of the 
patients that I see say one reason that they don't like the idea of switching to vaping is that people who do so end up using vapes all day long, all the time. And that can't be good for you, is the, is the argument made. And that's because you need large amounts, you need to vape a lot to get the levels of nicotine in that some people need. So stronger pro preparations would make a lot of sense. Let me ask you this, and then, and then we'll do the wrap. Um, the, the effort by advocates in North America to defend the use of vaping you know, is really centered on the harm reduction argument. And very rarely has it been a liberty issue. And I think that there's issues around that because there's of course a, a mixture of people's political views that are, that are vapors. And so hugging the, hugging the uh, liberty argument is not, you know, comfortable for a lot of people. But that said, let me just move it over to nicotine on its own. I believe that nicotine maybe five years ago, if it was argued that we should have access to it as a recreational uh, drug, would that have, would, is there any reason why from science that that would be an argument that would not fly? Or is that an argument that you can make? Is there science out there that could support that, that you know, it's benign um, as a recreational drug? Well, the whole spectrum of drugs that people use have a vast, there is a huge spectrum in the harms that come with them, and that bears little relation to what's legal and what isn't. Um, so politically, I can't see a great deal of uh, pulling a lot of weight to say nicotine should be a recreational drug, make it freely available to anybody, not least because in political terms, so many people would find that unacceptable, even if it's irrational. Well, clearly um, it is because cigarettes are available to anybody of age. <laughs> and exactly. So I mean, it's already available. And coffee is available to everybody. But it's... Uh, the concept that nicotine is a consumer product and that it's really important to offer consumers of nicotine safer ways to, to consume it is obvious. And that's something which the RCP report argued, if not as explicitly as that, it's certainly in there. And that smokers have a right, there's a moral right uh, and a moral entitlement to access safer products. So for a regulator to stop people accessing safer products while encouraging or sustaining or, or uh, condoning continued use of, of more harmful products is irrational and wrong. Well, I like irrational and wrong as an answer any day of the week. So um, Professor Britton, let's just wrap this up here. Can you give us, can you pull out your crystal ball and, and, and talk to us about vaping over the next year? Do you, do you see that it's going to get better or worse? Uh, things are going to settle down. Uh, we, as time passes, it will become increasingly, I believe it is becoming increasingly clear that there is no serious adverse effect in the short term, at least. The products will improve. Um, regulation may title, tighten slightly in different parts of the world uh, to give some degree of protection both to consumers and to, to legislators or policy makers who say, yes, we're happy for people to use these products, but we're putting in safety uh, constraints as a way of covering our backs, if, if you like. Um, so I think we'll see a, a trend towards greater use. But having said that, in the UK, the proportions that are vaping, it's been pretty steady for the last two or three years. So it may be that the technology has more or less reached its peak, uh, uh, pending another step forward in, in improvement in delivery of nicotine. And I think I just lost our shot there. Well, let's take it. Let's take that as it is. Uh, Professor Britta, thank you so much for coming back on RugWatch and good luck uh, with COVID. So we just don't have the same thing here. So, I mean, I respect everything you guys are doing and your position on it. Many thanks. Thanks for the invitation to come back. Great. And Cheers. just stay right there for one second. Thank you. And that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please head over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. And consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For regulatorwatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.